Welcome to In Her Image, a podcast where we seek and celebrate our mother God through scripture, scholarship, and everyday life. I am your host, Meg Ritmanick, and today I have with me Mandy Green. We're so excited to have her back. She's done a couple of episodes with us, and she's an incredible scholar. And we're going to be doing a special Christmas episode today. Um, we're going to be going over Mary and the tree of life and lots of different things to help you put a meaningful celebration of the feminine divine into your Christmas celebrations. So with that said, Mandy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Meg. It's my pleasure. Honestly, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, we're so excited. So how have your holidays been so far? (laughs) Well, they just started. I just finished finals, uh, probably the hardest week of my life in the last, wow. So I'm decompressing. Maybe that's why my voice is so terrible. But um, I told myself I couldn't set up Christmas until I finished my finals. So I am in full Christmas swing, boxes everywhere, and I love it so much. I'm like a Christmas freak. I just go crazy. Me too. I have a huge collection of Christmas decorations. It's super important for me to really deck the halls. It is. It is. (laughs) So maybe we could start off this podcast really actually talking about the tree of life and the connection that that has to our Christmas tree. I would love to. So our Christmas tree actually shows up in the 1800s, uh, in Germany, they this and it's a story, of course. Like all these traditions aren't like, well, we documented the Christmas tree today, right? So, they they uh, there were some people who were worshiping an oak tree, which I think is really interesting because oak trees are associated with. Uh, the feminine in Europe, particularly in England, right? This very steadfast, um, immovable type of thing. So uh, the priest came out and said, oh my goodness, you guys are pagans. You can't do this. And chopped down the tree and supposedly a pine tree grew in its stead. And he said, this is the new, this is the new, symbol of eternal life or everlasting life. And so that's where that really began. But what I thought was so fascinating about this that I didn't know until researching this was that December 24th is actually the feast day of Adam and Eve. What? So you have the feast day of Adam and Eve on the 24th preceding Christmas day. And remember that Christmas is a holiday that's that's actually celebrating the sun god and it slowly is integrated into western christianity uh and these feast days all kind of have these quote-unquote pagan roots now let me say pagan comes from the root paganus the latin root paganus which means country person rural person it's our equivalent of a hick right or someone who's like I don't even, I feel like I'm denigrating someone saying that backwoodsy, right? And it doesn't mean 
it doesn't mean what it's come to mean in our day. Like if I say pagan to you, what do you think of? Well, I have a different connotation with pagan because I've actually studied a lot of pagan traditions and I've come to admire and really cherish a lot of those traditions now in my life Yeah, because they have a lot of roots in like honoring the earth and respecting one another and finding symbolism through story. And I think it's really beautiful and adds a lot of richness. Um, and I've, you know, I've learned that most of our traditions and most of our holidays actually came from pagan yeah uh, traditions they were already celebrated um with along with the seasons and so um but i know a lot of people maybe not familiar with those kinds of things that haven't actually studied into that they will just be familiar with like the biblical view of a pagan which is someone that is doing something evil yeah um is kind of how the the bible portrays paganism right yeah it's like a cult it's bad right it's all yeah yeah but just not really how it was right they were just honoring the earth and celebrating seasons according to what happens in those seasons like the season of death and the season of harvest and the season of rebirth and just going with the earth so yeah yeah I, th- I think sometimes if we say pagan, people think a cult, they think, you know, something off, off of these lines, but it actually means it's rustic. Rustics may be a great word to say it. And what's so interesting about pagan practices is that they predate Christ. So are they looking forward to a Christ? Do these practices celebrate divine feminine, divine masculine, like all of these things, if you really look at a, at a pagan practice, you're looking at solstices, you're looking at celestial alignments. So all of this matters. And it, it was this undercurrent that Western Christianity came up against and tried to fight and weren't totally successful at eradicating. And again, they were like, that's so rustic. That's so uninformed. And that's really important for us to remember as we see something framed that way. Uh, because what happens is instead of being able to just eradicate it, it's assimilated into spiritual practice. It's assimilated into all of these things. So, and that of course, does it magnificently well, because the next thing you know, we're all celebrating Christmas and it's a, it's a worthy holiday. It's a worthy holiday. Um, again, the celebration is what you bring to it as well. So please remember that in all of this, it's, it's you, it's what works for you. So, uh, anyway, this is where we got the evergreen tree and incidentally in America, Christmas trees were kind of still considered pagan, but in a more modern sense. And, um, it wasn't until Queen Victoria and Prince Albert put up a giant Christmas tree at the palace. And then of course the America the American love of Royals was like, Oh, we need it. We need Christmas trees. So that's where ours in America really became quite pronounced. But as with everything, it has these deep, 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 uh, significant spiritual roots. So the last time I was on, we talked about wisdom in the temple in Proverbs eight and how she is a tree of life to 
those who come to her. And so the tree really is a symbol of her. And interestingly enough, I do have numerous Christmas trees up at my house. And uh, Mike Day, who has the podcast Talking Scripture, was at the house and he was like, oh, no wonder you have like 20 Christmas trees. And I was like, why would you say that? And he said, well, the divine feminine. And I hadn't even realized that subconsciously she's been pulled into my celebrations in magnificent ways. Um, I love the Christmas tree. I love the undying nature. I love the way it points. I love the way it shelters. I love the way it illuminates. And so that's, I feel that's at the root of what a Christmas tree represents and what she represents. And she's called the tree of life. There is a huge connection between the divine feminine and trees. And I also think it's really interesting that I'm going to kind of go off a tangent here. Okay. (laughs) That most likely the thing that will save our planet is planting lots of trees. And I think that there's a huge connection with the divine feminine and bringing her back into our spiritual practices and that restoring us spiritually and then also like planting trees on the earth and that restoring the earth and then kind of coinciding together. Um, And so when I think of trees and when I put like a tree in my house, it's, it is totally connected to the divine feminine. It's another way for me to bring her into the celebration, recognize how important um, that connection is to healing us and to healing the earth and different things like that. So. Well, and ecologically, trees manufacture the air we breathe the breath of life is actually given to us by trees and it absorbs our carbon our carbon dioxide is it carbon dioxide so in the same sense it's like the breath of life is given and then the absorption of all of our waste or our our refuse as we learn, as we grow, you know, there were two trees in the garden of Eden and that's significant. And so again, you've got the feast of Adam and Eve on December 24th, representing this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And this aspect of humanity or mortality, I would say that you have to learn, you're here to learn. There's nothing in that tree that's like, be perfect. It says you would know through your own experience to prize the good and the bad. And with that tree next to it is the tree of life, which preserves life through the eons. And so you've got these two trees next to each other. And I, and I loved that juxtaposition as far as Christmas Eve kind of being this breath of mortality and this descent into a mortal experience as we think of Christ descending down, coming down through all of those heavenly levels, condescending down as Nephi says, and then being raised back up to eternal life 
And that's all wrapped up in this beautiful celebration. You can't think about Christmas just as the birth because you think of what the birth means to you, the human family, right? To God, to our heavenly parents' family. And conversely, I can't think of Easter without thinking of the birth, the condescension, the coming down. And so the two trees are significant. And if it's okay, I'd love to jump into some, um, well, this apocryphal text that I believe is just critical in understanding a lot about Mary and a lot about the tree of life in terms of the Christmas story, if that's all right. Yeah, absolutely. That's beautiful. Okay. Um, oh gosh, where do we start? There's so many good things. Uh, well, we'll start with the Proto-Evangelium of James, which is the infancy gospel of James. In this story, it's believed that uh, Joseph is not Mary's husband, but her caregiver. And Mary's, Mary's own birth in this story is actually an immaculate conception as well. Her parents are very old. I mean, this is a common story. Her parents are very old. They prayed for a child. Uh, they were not able to have a child. And while the husband was away, the woman immaculately conceived Mary. It's got a lot of same themes as a Hannah story which Mary's Magnificat actually also uh, mirrors. And so but she has Mary and she swears she'll give her up to the temple. She'll give her to the Lord. And so it's said that Mary took seven steps and then never touched the ground again. That's significant. Seven celestial heavens, seven is the number of completion. And then at a young age, she was she was given to the temple and she was in the temple for all of her growing up. She grew up in the temple. That should tell you so much about the nature of who Mary is. Well, the issue became when she was old enough to begin menstruating, that blood is suddenly unholy. And so we've got to find something or someone or somewhere to take Mary so that she doesn't pollute the temple precinct. And so they lined up these uh, high priests of the temple and said a prayer for who should take Mary. And a dove landed on Joseph's staff. And Joseph was a widower. He had children from a previous marriage. His wife had died and he was, he, there he was. So Mary was taken into his home and he left, and that's when uh, our whole immaculate, you know, conception story happens. Can I dive into two things there that I think are really important? First off, the reason why women, when they menstruated, that was considered unholy is because it's a life force, right? Like there was something about losing life force that the potential of life force existing no longer existing anymore and that is why that was considered unholy and a rabbi was saying the reason why women are unclean after they've like gone through a period is because they've they're losing their life force to create and so 
like originally it started out as like this thing like let's like cleanse you and help you like recover from this period of time that like you've lost life force and it wasn't necessarily like an unclean thing as like much as like let's restore your life force back to you and then it turned into this you know how traditions just get mixed up and turned into this weird thing after generations and generations of practice um and then I also think it's really interesting that you said a dove landed on his staff because I've heard that the dove is actually a symbol of the divine feminine and it it often is in fact I think that's the that's the only way I've I've seen it I think there is actually an apocryphal text that talks about um, when the heavens open after Christ has been baptized, that a dove came down and that it was the spirit of Sophia in the dove that said, this is my beloved son. Literally, Heavenly Mother saying, this is my beloved son. And so that's an, I will have to look up that apocryphal text and put it in the notes. Yeah. I mean, from even in the canonical text, we just hear a voice that says, this is my beloved son, and something that appears in the form of a dove, I believe is what it says. Um, And there's no distinguishing of whose voice that is. But it's interesting how we read a text and just assign it a meaning, or if someone has already pre-assigned it a meaning, that we take on that meaning. And... I don't believe there's anything that denotes who's saying that. And I think that's, I think that's significant. Um, I think that is significant. I feel like I do read scripture so differently now, now that I have the (laughs) eyes and the lenses of the divine feminine. I'm like, oh, there she is. And there she is. And there she is. And there she is. But without that, it's, you just interpret it so differently. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's important to read the words. Right. And it's important to come at it like you haven't read it before. So back um, to Mary and this immaculate. Okay. Yeah. So back to Mary. Um, interestingly enough, during Josiah's purge in 620 BC, what was removed from the Holy of Holies was the Asherah, the tree. And Asher is, um, Ashar in Hebrew means to be happy, to be blessed. So the tree was the one that blessed you, that made you happy. And during the purge, she was removed from the temple and burned. And they also burned these groves of trees in the high places saying they were you know, wicked places. So here we have this displaced tree. And what are we going to do about it? And again, the the promise, let's see, it was in first Enoch, I believe, um, that when the lady is banished, the priests lose their vision. They're no longer able to perceive. So one of the gifts of if you see an old Asherah, and it's amazing, they're digging up thousands of them right now uh, in in Israel. And when I was there in 2014, I wanted to write a paper about this. My teacher was like, 
Well, those are nothing. They aren't, they don't amount to anything. Well, now there's thousands of them being dug up, but an Asherah has the root of a tree. Her, like her waist down is the, it's like a tree trunk. I should say a trunk. And then her hands are under her breasts showing that, but she always is depicted with these ginormous eyes, these huge eyes. And so one of the gifts of the lady is this gift of vision, this gift of seeing. Well, if everything that Josiah did was on the up and up, and the promise is that as long as you uh, you worship God in the correct way, that you'll never be removed from your place. Well, 587, the temple is destroyed and Israel's taken into captivity. So you tell me, right? Like, is this a good thing or a bad thing to remove the tree from the Holy of Holies? Um, and so we have this displaced tree. And in the Proto-Evangelium, uh, there's this beautiful account of when Mary is born. Well, when Jesus is born, excuse me. Um, there's a place in Israel, and I've been there twice now. Now, the Church of the Nativity is where Constantine's mother went in 300, and she wanted to designate all these sacred sites. So she asked everybody and they were like, no, this is the place. This is the place. This is the place. And so this is kind of where we have these sites. Um, how accurate it is. I don't know. People hate it when I lead a tour in Israel. And I'm like, this is where people think it might be, but it's actually, if it is here, it's several hundred feet below us, or it could be here and they want the exact spot. Well, this is the one place I believe is pretty as close as we can get. And it's this beautiful spot called Kathisma. And it's a church built in the 500s. It's an octagonal church. There are only a few octagonal buildings in sacred in the sacred world. One is the Dome of the Rock. But Kathisma is also built in an octagonal shape, eight being the number past completion, new life. And the story is that Mary at mile marker three outside of Jerusalem, uh, she says, Jesus, Mary gave birth to Jesus in a desert place under a palm tree, which sheds its dates for her to eat. So this is the date palm, right? It's a fruit bearing palm. A stream appeared from under the tree so that Mary could refresh herself. The palm tree setting for the nativity is reminiscent of the palm tree resting place for Mary that was originally on the way to Egypt, but then transferred in popular piety to the resting place near Bethlehem. The palm tree mosaic found in the octagonal church, Kathisma, there is remarkably similar to one of the mosaic trees on the wall of the Dome of the Rock. So if you stand in the spot, you can perfectly see the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Um, that she's, this is the place Mary sat or squatted with angels. And it said in the Qumran, actually, that a palm tree bent to shade Mary and that a river of water was flowing by and it rose up to give her drink. And this is the place where Mary sat or squatted with angels. Now, later on, it's, it's said to be the place where Mary rested on her way to Egypt. So we have these two kind of stories being conflated into one. 
But the palm is a very interesting symbol. In Egypt, it's called the, well, in Greek, it's the phoenix tree, but it comes from this root that we would know as phoenix and represents death and rebirth. So here, right in the story, you've got this beautiful tree representing death and rebirth and the woman giving life to the son who actually dies and is reborn. And on the floor of this chapel, uh, there are palm trees all over in these mosaics that are, that are pink. Now, what's so cool about this site, and I don't know, last time I was there, it was wired off, but they discovered it in the 1990s. They've been looking for this lost church for over a thousand years. 1990s, they're widening the road from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and they hit this structure. And all of a sudden, oh my gosh, here's the floor of Kathisma. And they excavated it. You can look in biblical archaeology. There's a great article about it that they they looked at all of the mosaics and you've got these beautiful pink of all colors, pink mosaics with these gorgeous palm trees. And there's two rings, two octagonal rings. And at the center is this rock. And... Uh, then they didn't have the money to develop it or look at it. So they just dumped all the dirt right back on and it's just sitting there off the road, um, as this perfect gem, I believe that represents so much of this story. The palm trees are there right now. There's a huge olive grove there. There's water there. So all of these symbols that represent her or her son or the, the combination of the two are there. And as I stood on the rock in the center of that beautiful building, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, it says it's in a temple cave. So where, where's our cave here, right? And the spirit just said, Mandy, what are you standing on? And I was like, oh, Okay. So Kathisma is a is a place that not many of us know about. But maybe it's supposed to stay that way. Maybe the holiness of it is that it hasn't been going back to your comment about ecology and creation and how we are tied to creation. We're not here to just consume and burn up creation we are we are stewards of creation um for me it's the perfect way to celebrate this this goddess the the condescension the birth of christ because all of these symbols are here in this unknown space that is holy that is set apart but that is walked and driven by all day, every day. Again, the idea of eyes to see and ears to hear. And um, incidentally, that a similar palm is found in the floor of the Dome of the Rock, not too far from there, with this beautiful inscription about Mary, the mother. So we have the Asherah tree and we have the menorah in the Holy of Holies, which represents a tree. But we also have this palm tree. And notice on Palm Sunday, it's the palms 
that are being waved. Now, what's interesting is that's part of Sukkot. That's a harvest festival. Why are they doing it at Passover? Well, perhaps that has something to do with the symbol of the palm. And so I think inherent in all of this, I don't know if this is making any sense, but inherent in all of this is this mother as the central spoke, like the central piece, the grounding critical piece in Jesus' birth as the tree, the one that gives the breath of life and absorbs all of the fallout of humanity and mortality as we take it in. And it's the most quiet, unassuming. And I'm not saying that because I think she's quiet and unassuming and just this docile thing. I hate that song, Mary, did you know? I hate it so much because I think absolutely she knew. She was raised in the temple. I believe angels were her company. And it's kind of like saying, Jesus, did you know? Well, of course he's being trained and raised and and doing all these things. So I think she was very cognizant of what was going on and her role in all of it. But I think the quietness and um, if you've ever been to any of these sites, you imagine a place like that. And then you go into this very heavily adorned church that's got all kinds of things going on and all kinds of pilgrims and people yelling and getting mad and all these different things. And you're like, how am I feeling holy here? Perhaps this is one of the last few holy sites that exists in nature, in creation, uh, to reverence the mother of the Lord with the trees, with the water, with the light, with the view of Jerusalem. And that's such a fascinating thing to think about too, is the proximity to the Jerusalem temple, but that she's, she's not there because it's, it's not the place where God can come. And my favorite part in the Proto-Evangelium, James is said to be a teenage, a teenager. He's a teenage son of Joseph. He goes with them to Jerusalem. So this is James' account. This is James the just. This is James who was thrown off the Temple Mount uh, for his testimony of Jesus Christ. And Jerusalem was sacked shortly thereafter. So this is James the just, the Uh, They say half-brother of Christ, but he's an eyewitness of this. And at one point, he transposes to a first-person account of Joseph as he's going to fetch the midwife. And as he comes back, he sees this brilliant light and time stops. And Margaret Barker in her book says, as the timeless enters time. So the shepherd stops like mid, people stop mid voice, water stops midstream, time stops, the light enters the cave, and then time resumes. I mean, what do you even say about that? So are you saying this is the cave that you think Mary had Jesus in? I think it's something like that if it isn't it it's 
like I said, it's tradition dates to around 500, which is quite a ways out, but everything about it seems to line up more in an Old Testament frame than in a frame that we think. The Church of the Nativity is an amazing place to visit, but it's further into Bethlehem. It doesn't have that view. And I think sometimes, and this is just totally Mandy Midrash, right? Midrash is just my own commentary on something. It's not that it has any type of foundation, but sometimes perhaps sacred things are kept sacred. Yeah. Well, what I was going to comment on that is that a lot of times my most sacred experiences, most of my most sacred experiences have been literally in the mountains, in natural places. And I think that that is a powerful way that God works. And it it talks about that in the Old Testament, you know, Abraham and Moses all going to the mountains and receiving revelation and that being their sacred place. And so it would make sense to me that the most sacred of sacred would stay natural. So that's interesting. So can you tell us more about the menorah and where, like if you have information about it um, because I think it would be interesting to pull that thread on the menorah and in connection to the divine feminine. Sure. So the menorah represented the tree of life. Like we said, it was in the Holy of Holies. It was thrown out and taken out um, from Solomon's temple. Now in our current view of, of the tabernacle and the temple, uh, it's placed in the holy place, not the holy of holies. And so it's it's there, but then in the book of Revelation, I pulled out uh, my Greek book of Revelation and what's so interesting about Revelation that we're going to be studying some of us is that in the end times in the temple of the new Jerusalem, the tree of life is restored to the Holy of Holies. It's in the Holy of Holies. And as water flows out from the Holy of Holies, let me pull this up. Um, whoops, wrong page. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me a river of living water, clear as crystal, literally glowing, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Through the, through the middle of the city's main street, on each side of the river, was the tree of life, producing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and its leaves were for the healing of peoples. No longer will everything be under a curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his doulos, his slaves, will worship him, and they will see his countenance, 
and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will have no need for the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord, the most high God will shine on them and they will reign for eons of time. And he said unto me, these words are faithful and true. So if you look at this giant ark at the beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden and the tree of life and the cherubim, cherub means a sword actually. So I don't know where we got these cute, you know, these cute chubby angels. They're adorable, but a cherub, like if you're saying it's a cherubim, it actually cherub is a hard H like in Hanukkah, which we'll talk about, but they're the sword bearing angels. So when Cherubim guard the tree of life, that's some serious stuff. Um, and it was so that they they would be able to have that experience, but not live forever in that experience. And the restoration, so you have the tree at the beginning, but here you have the tree at the end in its rightful place. And like it said, it's leaves, it produces fruit. And its leaves are for the healing of all people. So the menorah represents um, in Judaism and in the Hebrew temple, the the old Solomon's temple, uh, it represents the tree of life. Now, again, the tradition through time gets transposed and the, the, the uh, celebration of Hanukkah or the festival of lights comes from... <clears throat> When the temple had been destroyed and they came back to rebuild it, there was not enough holy oil to burn the lamps in the temple for the eight days required for purification. Again, there's that number eight. Um, and so they said a prayer and they said, this is all of the oil that's left. And they said a prayer and put it in the, in the menorah. And it burned for the entire eight days and sanctified that space. And so Hanukkah is the celebration of the festival of lights, celebrating this miraculous moment when they were able to cleanse the table, the temple and sanctify it once again. Okay. So I have a question for you. I had read in my studies that the menorah was an ancient symbol of the tree of life and that it originally was incorporated to, into the temple ceremony as a symbol of Heavenly Mother and the Tree of Life. After I read that, I went and bought one. And I kind of was going along with the idea that my home is a temple and that I could bring this powerful spiritual symbol of Heavenly Mother into my home and celebrate her within the walls of my personal temple and home. But so far... <laughs> Uh, that's as far as it's gone is just buying it and putting it inside of a cupboard <laughs> because I've been a little unsure on how to initiate that celebration of Heavenly Mother around the menorah in my home and I'd really like to incorporate it as a symbol of her and a way to celebrate and honor her but I don't want to appropriate any traditions from Hanukkah because I really want to honor and respect those 
traditions and the people that use those in their own sacred practices. Um, I have thought of maybe using it during different times of year, maybe starting on Mother's Day or something, but I've been a little unsure on how to make it meaningful and sacred on my own, in my own way. I've had a hard time thinking of ideas and I'm wondering if you have any recommendations or insights into the symbolism of the menorah and how I could use it in my own celebration of the tree of life and heavenly mother. I, I believe it represents the presence of God. That's why she's in the Holy of Holies, because you pass through the veil into the presence of God. That's what the Holy of Holies represents. So the illumination of her presence, maybe each day you could, you know, read some verses that have to do with wisdom. Maybe you could, uh, you know, think of uniquely way, like unique ways to serve. You could buy a palm tree. You could um, visit living water. You could, um, you know, I'm trying to think as you light that candle, how, how are you growing spiritually or how are you taking that light and uh, just like reflecting it? because we're not the source of the light. Like in my podcast, the name of my podcast is reflecting light because I'm, I'm never the source of the light. I'm just trying to put the mirror in the right space to reflect that divine light. So it could be practices that reflect her light. It could be practices that help you know her light, or maybe just a, a mix of all of the above. Um, Hanukkah starts, I believe on the, the ninth of this year. Is that right? Eighth or ninth? Um, and maybe you don't even use it in conjunction with Hanukkah. Um, but the part of Hanukkah I really do like is the multiplying of the lights. And that is each candle burns down, then the next day it's two, then it's three, then it's four, then it's five. And so the cumulative effect of lighting the candles is that on each day you have more light, if that makes sense. So that's a great question. I'm not sure I, I have an answer. Yeah. Well, you've given me a couple of ideas and I definitely want to take it further and come up with more or maybe have conversations with some other people about it and see how what they would recommend it's actually really hard to i've had a hard time finding like the ancient roots of the menorah um most of it's like modern inter interpretations of what the yeah. menorah is and yeah. so it's really hard to find anything that's ancient associated with it and but I found like maybe one thing, <laughs> just that it is the tree of life and that it originated as the tree of life inside of the yeah. temple. And yeah. that's pretty much it. But then everything else is just, oh, no, that's not what it is. That's not the ancient root, that, you know, like the spirit just speaking to me. But like I went yeah. and bought one because I just was feeling so uh, like tied to putting that symbolism in my home. 
And then I'm just like, I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to use this, but I felt. No, I have moved. a menorah. <laughs> I, I felt moved. It's right out with my stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, I hear what you're saying. Like, you don't want to appropriate it. Right. Being respectful to a Jewish tradition, but you're not using it in the, through the lens of the Jewish tradition. Right. So, um, what is the essence of the tree of life? It's life. It's zoe, like the Hebrew word. I mean, the Greek word means the ability to, to cause something to be. Its equivalent is Yahweh in Hebrew. So the, the tetragrammaton, yod heh vav um, And that means that you cause life to be, that it perpetuates. Interestingly enough, Eve's name has the same root minus that yod, that little ya. And hers is a finite representation of life. And Jehovah's is a infinite. By that yod, it becomes an imperfect verb, which makes it a continuous action in Hebrew. So Christ is this continuous regeneration of life. But Eve is a proto, like a prototype or a, what's the word? Like a resemblance of him in a mortal way, which is a fascinating thing to look at. Um, that, that she shares that with him and she's a woman. And so that's a fascinating way of looking at life through a Hebrew lens, not a Jewish lens, a Hebrew lens. Um, so you could, you could examine life, eternal life in different ways. Um, but that, or women who brought life, Eve, Miriam, Mary, the mother, the woman at the well, I think is a significant one. Um, maybe you could highlight eight women and look at their role in life, um, in you know, spiritual or physical or eternal, whatever it might be, hmm. preserving life. Uh, the midwives in Moses' day, they're amazing. They are preserving life against <laughs> Pharaoh's orders. So maybe you could look at it through the lens of life. I think that would be a beautiful way because that's a very, it's looking at the divine feminine, but through a, a lens of people in our experience. Hmm you can learn from their examples i love that that's really beautiful and thank you for making those connections i really love how you because you understand the roots of words and things you're able to like make those little connections of here's how this connects to this and yeah it's really cool and isn't that beautiful that it really all connects yeah. As you pull these threads, you just pull out five other threads that connect to other things. And I feel like that's that's a big thing. Like, yeah, this is part of it. This is connected. Otherwise, those threads will pull out pretty quick, but quickly, I should say. But these just keep pulling and then it pulls other threads. But it really is connected. These deep symbols are symbols for a reason because they can last time they can last through all of the transitions and we can overcome the traditional baggage that's associated with the symbols and go from there yeah 
That's beautiful. I think that is our role in life is to like overcome that baggage, right? Dig deeper and understand the roots and reclaim that truth that exists. So, um, it's my belief, and uh, there's a lot of scholarship to back this up that the tree of life is a seven branched candle, which would represent the seven celestial heavens, the seven days of creation. Seven as the number of completion. Um, that is what I believe the original menorah was. And again, the menorah is a representation of the tree of life. And if you, um, Nephi 11 is my favorite chapter in the Book of Mormon, but he says that the fruit of the tree was desired to make one happy. Now we know that Nephi wrote in Reformed Egyptian, and he said, if we could have written in Hebrew, there would be no error, but this is what we have. Well, what's the Hebrew word for happy? Asherah. It's Asherah. So when he sees the tree, he asks the angel, what does the tree represent? And the angel immediately shows him a picture of the most beautiful and fair woman he's ever seen in the city of Nazareth. And he says, this is the meaning of the tree. And Nephi says, it is the most, is the thing you could desire most in the world. And the angel says, yes. And the most delicious to the soul. So I really recommend that I, if I were to pick a text that you would read to ponder the role of the divine feminine in the nativity, it would be first Nephi 11. As you look at the love of God evidenced through Mary and keep in mind that Nephi and Lehi live at the exact time of Josiah's temple purges. So Lehi says, I have a dream that Jerusalem's going down and Laman and Lemuel are like, what are you talking about? We are super pious. We observe all the rites. We observe all the rituals. And then both Lehi, again, you've got two witnesses, Lehi and Nephi have a vision of the tree. Well, what's Nephi and Lehi's orientation to the temple? They absolutely know the tree as a part of the Holy of Holies. And so as you start to make these connections and pull this thread here, you're starting to see that all the angel has to do is show Nephi or Lehi the tree and they understand which is that contextual piece that I'm not sure that we get, but that's, that's all going on at this same time. And so here's the tree showing up as the menorah. Here's the tree showing up in the garden. Here's the tree showing up at the nativity, the infancy gospel of, of James proto meaning before Evangelion, meaning the good news, the gospel, right? Um, the pre good news, but it's called the infancy gospel of James and you can look it up online. You can read the whole thing. Um, James the Just is one of my heroes. He is on 
flinching in his testimony of Jesus Christ. And this is the same James that wrote, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask. This phrase that has flavored everything about restoration comes from this same being who also references wisdom and the lack of wisdom and the invitation to ask God, which I feel brings the whole thing full circle. Here's the tree showing up in the Quran. I can actually read you this text. I think it's just uh, quite beautiful. This is Sarah 19, Miriam. And remember, Miriam also has many, her main predecessor was with Moses and Aaron. She was the wisdom. She was the wisdom figure. She was the one who um, showed them where the water was. Um, so again, another parallel. All right, verse 16, relate in the book, the story of Mary, when she withdrew from her family to a place in the East, she placed a screen to screen herself from them. Then we sent to her our angel, and he appeared before her as a man in all respects. She said, I seek refuge from thee to Allah, most gracious. Come not near if thou dost fear Allah. He said, nay, I am only a messenger from the Lord to thee to announce the gift of a holy son. She said, how shall I have a son seeing that no man has touched me and I am not unchaste? He said, so it will be, the Lord saith, that is easy for me. We wish to appoint him as a sign unto men and a mercy from us. It is a matter so decreed. So she conceived him and she retired with him to a remote place. And this is the verse I really wanted to highlight. And the pains of childbirth drove her to the trunk of a palm tree. She cried in her anguish. Ah, would that I had died before this. Would that I had been a thing forgotten and out of sight. Probably anyone who's had natural childbirth can relate to that. But a voice cried to her from beneath the palm tree. Grieve not. For the Lord hath provided a rivulet beneath thee. And shake towards thyself the trunk of the palm tree. It will let fall fresh date, fresh ripe dates upon thee. So eat and drink and cool thine eye. And if thou dost see any human say, I have vowed to fast to Allah. At length, she brought the babe to her people, carrying him in her arms. They said, oh, Mary, truly an amazing thing thou hast brought. So that's in the Quran. Yes. So you said. Yeah. I didn't know the Quran had the story of Christ's birth in it. Yes. Christ is considered a great, a great prophet. And you have this story of Mary. And that's, that's where the, the thread here is really interesting because we have the thread we're pulling, but the Quran is really corroborating this idea of the palm tree, the squatting there, um, her being born, uh, this, the immaculate conception of Jesus. There's, There's things I'm not saying because there is a sacredness to all of this. 
And it is wisdom's job to illuminate uh, the eyes of those who seek her and those who uh, reverence her. And reverence in both Hebrew and Greek means it gets translated as the, well, the fear of the Lord is what the Proverbs say is the beginning of wisdom. And it, it's fear, but it's reverence, right? The, the greater aspect of that is reverence. The fear comes from the sense of this is a real, powerful goddess. This is someone with ridiculous power. She doesn't need anyone protecting her. You should protect yourself from her, honestly. Like people who say that do, they don't know what they're talking about, right? I just, I just see like the guy in Ocean's Eleven, like crossing himself when he pushes that button to like send this seismic, whatever. That's what we're talking about. Someone of tremendous power but also someone of tremendous tenderness and love. The Madonna and child paintings that we see everywhere, it's always Mary and Jesus. But may I make the invitation that it's also the mother and you. And maybe the reason those are so ubiquitous and everywhere is that the invitation is to know wisdom. If you lack wisdom, ask Elohim and it will be given to you and you won't be upbraided. You won't be censured. The Greek there is you won't be censured, mocked, made fun of, shamed, um, vilified, counted as already guilty for asking. I mean, if that is the invitation, if that's the divine template, we can ask God and not have any of that baggage. But I would really, really recommend the source. I would recommend, as James said, instructs to ask God if you lack wisdom and do it in the sense of a Madonna and child. Are you real? How can I know you? How can I feel you? What was your role? What does it look like? Um, these are these are the some of the ways. Um, you know, the tree again, Nephi, but I think it's a very personal thing. I think it's a very sacred thing, which is why I tend to back off of a very prescriptive <clears throat> checklist kind of thing, because how you come to know wisdom is for you and how wisdom will illuminate your life and she will is up to you know that she tests you she's not just like handing out snacks like at a fair right she's she's going to make sure that the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom that you really if you're going to approach the throne of wisdom you do it in a very reverent and not like in a primary fold your arms way, but in a fearful, beautiful sense of, I have some inkling of who you truly are. And I wish to know you better, but it's a very, very humble posture. And the invitation's there. And that's how you can begin. That's how you can start your journey that's how you can further your journey 
is looking at some of these clues we've discussed and invite wisdom to illuminate you about herself. Invite the father to illuminate you about uh, her because that's a different perspective. Invite the son to illuminate you about his mother, what he came from. And all of those are ways that you can learn more. And as you put up your Christmas tree, the, the original Christmas trees were actually decorated with apples, interestingly enough. And then Martin Luther put light on them. But uh, I mean, is there anything better than sitting underneath a lit Christmas tree on a on a dark night? I feel that's the perfect symbol of her, this upward pointing, steadfast, undying source of love that illuminates your way in the darkness. And even just, you know, spending 10 minutes a night sitting under your tree. If you don't have one, you can come sit under mine. I actually have like I call her gargantua. I have a 20 foot Christmas tree in my front room because I am passionate about Christmas trees. And I joke to my husband, we owe it to the community because everyone can see the tree as they, as they drive up. But honestly, it's a way I shine that light too, even to people who don't even know they're, they're experiencing her love or experiencing that illumination in the darkness she is one that does illuminate the darkness. She is one that breathes life into us in our darkness and takes the weight of our darkness. And thus the tree is, is such a perfect symbol of her. And um, it is my belief that the restoration of the tree is what makes our world whole and new again. And at that point, water flows and illumination flows and the nations are healed. All of that comes about because of her being restored to the temple. And that's something to contemplate for us too. Does that matter? Do we have a role in that? How does that happen? Does it just magically happen? Or... Is there something to it? So I also recommend the book of Revelation. Uh, look up the things about the mother and the tree in there. I feel like whenever I've listened to you before, I start going down the rabbit holes. <laughs> so with that said, I know those that have a curious heart and mind and are ser searching for wisdom, what text do you recommend they deep dive down into to receive that illumination uh proverbs 8 if you haven't read that proverbs 7 and 8 i feel uh this book christmas the original story by margaret barker is amazing she's going to take you through the old temple the the new temple matthew mark luke quran infancy gospel this has a lot of beautiful clues about mary if you're looking for specific christmas things the, the book of Revelation, 1 Nephi 8 and 11. Uh, I feel like the book of Isaiah talks about her a lot. If you want to look at wisdom through the lens of Isaiah. 
You know what I think is so interesting is it's the books that people have the hardest time with (laughs) that you find wisdom in. And it's because they haven't been looking for her in it. And that's why it's so confusing and it doesn't make any sense. But as soon as you put the lens of wisdom on revelation and the lens of the divine feminine on revelation and you put the lens of divine feminine and restoring the tree of life to the gospel and to the temple, all of a sudden Isaiah makes perfect sense and revelations makes perfect sense. It's like, whoa, all of this that seems so confusing and didn't make any sense all of a sudden just clicks in. It's like, well, this makes perfect sense, actually. <laughs> and it's it interesting does. that those are the, mo- like, the Isaiah chapters, they say are the most important chapters of the Book of Mormon. And the Revelation chapters are, like, you know, people say they're so interesting and weird, but, like, they talk about Heavenly Mother and, like, the Tree of Life so much in, like, um, coded ways. And it, and it is coded. It's it's for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, which is the most quoted verse of Isaiah in the New Testament. Additionally, I cannot think of another book that the Savior explicitly names in Third Nephi. He says, search the writings of Isaiah. He has an explicit commandment for us to search the writings of Isaiah. Is this, again, I feel like the path to her is the light in the darkness. It's for those, for me personally, the canonized text of Mary and wisdom is wildly unsatisfying. It just doesn't satisfy my soul. And so I think if you're paying attention to the Lord's example, notice how he speaks to women how he elevates women, how women are present at rituals and processes. And he's trying to restore wisdom to her proper place. If you look at his ministry through that lens. Um, And he's the one saying, go read Isaiah. Because I think he's saying, for those of you who really are searching and need more, the clues are found here. Like I said, they're not just thrown out like parade candy. You have to be a sincere seeker and inherent in seeking is that you will live in accordance with what you receive, right? It's not to satisfy your curiosity. Joseph Smith asked for wisdom. Was his life one of parade candy. No, it was this very steep grade of learning and growing. And so the questions are always welcome. No questions outlawed, no questions shameful, no questions outrageous. Uh, But with knowledge comes responsibility. And so know that too. And maybe your Christmas is just preparing yourself right? Maybe it's that. Maybe for some others, it's like a big, deep dive. Maybe for some of you, it's just the first time of even thinking this and just letting it sit. Let the doctrines of the priesthood distill on your soul like dews from heaven. Um, It could be a number of things, uh, but maybe it begins with the question, right? It begins with the question 
is wisdom real? And how do I know you? And then let her show herself to you. That's a beautiful invitation. Mandy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate your time and the things that you've shared with us today. so grateful that I've been able to be on this podcast for the last few months. It's been so amazing. I hope you've been enjoying this series of learning about legends and traditions and folk tales and stories about the goddess from all over the world. And I hope that you're learning a lot about yourself in the process. Um, we are so excited when we come back in the middle of January, we're going to be doing an interview with Pam England about the Hindu goddess of the heavens called Anana, and it's about her descent into the underworld and then her ascent out of the underworld back into the heavens um it is seriously the best interview that i've ever done <laughs> and i know that it's going to bless your life so be excited and looking forward to that when we get back and also on that note if you have a story that you would like to share please reach out to us and let us know. We'd love to add it to this series. We'd love for you to reach out to us. You can just email us at inherimage at gmail.com or you can message us on Instagram while you're here with us. Please, and if you feel so inclined, sign up to send us a monthly small monetary donation um, so we can continue providing this podcast for you. We need to earn enough money to be able to renew our Zoom account for the next year which allows us to be able to hold these amazing interviews get those recordings and then publish them as well as some other subscription subscription costs that we have for editing and publishing we hope you have a super satisfying holidays and that you are able to focus on rest and renewal and creating moments of magic with the people you love we will see you again in the new year Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. Feel free to share it. And if you haven't yet, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so monthly by making a monthly donation to anchor.fm forward slash in her image. We'll be back in January with another inspiring episode.